Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Killer Psyche ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains adult content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. This season of Killer Psyche has been wonderful for me. I've gotten to review cases I hadn't seen in a while and examine new ones. I learned a lot doing the research for these episodes, most of which I passed on to you. There's always a push and pull in true crime. Did we go too far in describing the brutality of the crime? Were there enough details for the audience to understand the crimes and the psychology? And also, which sources are most trustworthy and will help us tell you about the killer? For this week's episode, I want to discuss some of the cases we've covered this season. So I've asked my producer, Julie, to talk with me about the cases that affected us the most, which ones taught us the most, and which ones were the hardest to do. As a Killer Psyche listener, you'll love Audible's new pulse-pounding collection of exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. With captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances, their titles are brought to life. I recommend The Killer Across the Table by John Douglas, my mentor at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and his co-author, Mark Olshacker. It is great. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. That's audible.com slash psyche or text psyche to 500-500. Killer Psyche is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Wondery and Treefort Media, I'm Candace DeLong, and this is a special episode of Killer Psyche. My producer, Julie, and I talk about crime together pretty much every day. We put in a lot of research and time into each episode. And I'm not going to lie, some of them hit us much harder than others. Today, Julie and I will discuss the things we learned, the things we missed, 
and what it's like to do a true crime podcast. This episode is part one of two in What We've Learned So Far, season one. Kenneth, you've had a really long and amazing career. Why did you choose to do a podcast? I would be talking with someone about a story, a crime story, things I knew. And for years, people would say, oh my gosh, you sound like an encyclopedia. You should have a radio show. And so that happened. I had a radio show on KGO Radio in San Francisco called Crime Time with Candace DeLong. And then some years went by and podcasts just exploded. And I think I told you that a waiter at one of my favorite restaurants, he knew who I was. He was listening to true crime podcasts and he kept asking me if I'd listen to a particular one. And I know, no, no. And so finally I thought, I think I'll just have to listen to it. And so I did listen to it and it happened to be a crime I was very familiar with. The 1946 lipstick murder in Chicago. In fact, it's one of my favorite murders. And by the time I was done with my 45-minute walk listening to the podcast, I realized I knew so much more than the woman telling the story because of my training at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, which is now called the Behavioral Assessment Unit. And I thought, wow, I can do this and get into things that interest me, which is the why. Why did someone do this? I had a really long commute at one point before the pandemic where I had to go almost an hour and a half to work. And uh, a friend of mine told me about some true crime podcast, said, you should really listen to this. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to listen to my music. And I started listening and I sort of fell in love with that true crime podcast. And the first one that I listened to of Killer Psyche, because I came in at episode six, the first one I listened to was The Lipstick Killer. And I found it really fascinating. I think I listened to it like 12 times trying to get to learn your (laughs) voice. (laughs) It got a little, it it was a little obsessive. But that episode was really well done. I wasn't on the show then. And I kind of fell in love with the podcast at that point. You know, when they brought me on, they said to me, oh, it's going to be, it's easy. You're just going to, you know, be working with Candace. You guys will talk. But I think they, uh, they kind of didn't tell me the truth on that one because it has been a lot of work, but it's been a lot of fun too. Yeah. And as we were saying, it's not all fun. No. It's, I know we've, we've talked a lot about, we've had a few bad days while we were preparing and while we recorded a murder that was so gruesome and so horrible. I know what my, I guess I could say, worst one was, and I'll tell you, but tell me yours. Wow. Well, I have to say the first one that really, really affected me in in a negative way was the Wichita Massacre. I mean, of course, other episodes were hard. What happened in those episodes was horrible. But the Wichita massacres really bothered me in a way that some of the other episodes hadn't bothered me up to that point. I don't know if it's the randomness of how they came upon their victims or whether it was the just brutality and 
I know I'm not supposed to say the word evil, but it, it just felt so evil. And so <laughs> like, why? Why those people? It made no sense. Right. And it was really, that one was hard for me to deal with. I remember you told me, I think I, I know what you're talking about. And maybe we should let the listeners know what happens, what goes on in our life when we're really disturbed by something. It's not something you shake off right away. No, it's not. I, and I have a young son, and I've always been slightly, probably overprotective. You know, he's mm-hmm. my baby, but I've become very overprotective now. Like I, I double check my my doors after we did. Yay! Uh, yay! Yes, I know. <laughs> you love for me to double check my doors, but after some of the episodes, I started to get a little more aware of my security at the house. I go through mm-hmm. and I double check our locks. And <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. The other day I came home and nobody else was at home. And I think my washing machine had just stopped, you know, like it had just mm-hmm. kind of shut down or finished a cycle. And I heard this kind of click, 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 click. So I opened the door and I was like, hello, is anybody there? And nobody answered. So we have all these baseball bats in the house. And I don't know what I think I was going to do if somebody was in it, <laughs> even if I had the baseball bat. So I grabbed the baseball bat. I'm like, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just going to go through. I'm going to face whatever it is. So I grabbed the <laughs> baseball bat and I said, I said, hello, is anybody in there? I was like, I'm going to come and meet you with my Louisville slugger. <laughs> and I walked around the house and I kicked open every door like I was some gunslinger, some federal agent. I went through, looked under beds, looked in the you know closet. At that point, I was like, okay, nothing's in here. I can relax. But I think I still kept the bat with me, even when I went out to my (laughs) office. But it's like, what am I going to do? I mean, the best thing to do, I'm sure, is just run, get out of the house. But I thought I was going to be some Mad Max character and take them on with the baseball bat, which would probably not. I think it would have been great if I jumped out of the closet and said, it's just me. (laughs) (laughs) I would probably run then. (laughs) I feel like she can take me on. Yeah. What about you? Actually, well, the toughest one for me, and we did back-to-back Ken and Barbie, Carla Homolka, oh, yeah. and Paul Bernardo of Canada. I, I forget what episode that was. But here were two young people. They were called Ken and Barbie because they resembled the dolls. They were beautiful young people. And they had everything going for them except a good heart. Their hearts were black. And it wasn't simply that they killed. Carla helped. Carla is a sexual sadist. But the thing that just really got me was she gave her little 15-year-old sister, drugged her, and gave her to Paul as a Christmas present. And they got away with it. I think I wouldn't have been so upset if she had served life in prison, but through some legal maneuvering and something that happened in Canada, she only served 12 years and she was instrumental in killing three or four people. Well, they made her deal before they even heard those tapes. Right. So way before they knew how involved she was and then they were kind of stuck in this deal. Well, actually in America, in our legal system, when you agree to a plea deal. And part of her plea 
was giving them all the information she had on Paul Bernardo and the crimes. So she gave them only what she wanted them to know, which wasn't much. And then the tapes were found and looked at. And investigators and prosecutors were horrified. But they couldn't get out of the deal with Carla. But that wouldn't happen in America. In our system, it's called a proffer, P-R-O-F-F-E-R. And the defendant or the accused is basically signing a deal that you must be forthcoming with everything. Even a lie of omission will negate the deal. And the bad guy goes to prison probably forever, but that didn't happen. And that really stuck in my craw as well. She went on to get married and have children. And I feel like, why should she have a happy life? She took that possibility away from three other young women. With Paul Bernardo, Ken, he had a horrible childhood. He did. Mm -hmm. You could kind of see the roots of something percolating in there. But Carla Hamoka, she was adored. She was loved by her parents. Mm -hmm. And unless there's something that hasn't been documented about her, I would say, you know, a lot of what we read was like the bad seed. I don't know if there is yeah. a bad seed, but she, no, there is. she felt like it. And so it was very confusing in some ways how those two people met up and then brought out the worst in each other. Well, Carla was the princess of her family, and I see her as a psychopath, and I see Paul as a sociopath. Psychopaths are born, hence the bad seed concept, and sociopaths are made, and they're made by abuse, neglect, things like that. And these two fell in love, or at least fell in the hots for each other, and just wreaked havoc on their little city where they lived in Canada. Anyway, and then right on the heels of that was Richard Trenton Chase, the Sacramento vampire murderer. And that was about as gory as it gets. Yeah. But to be honest, he didn't bother me as much. Because I think he was like two before that. He was like episode 11. And I think Ken and Barbie was episode 13. But Richard Trenton Chase, he was so ill that I, yeah. I didn't have as... I mean, it's horrible what happened. It was really gross. It was violating. But he didn't do it because he was a sadist. He didn't no. do it out of malice. And for me, that made it a little easier. The people like the dating game killer and Robert Hansen, they were both sadists. And that's really hard to deal with people whose one focus is to torture and to dominate other people. And it just is really unsettling in many different ways. Right. I think we touched on this the other day. Serial killers are very rare. There are crimes that make headlines and that we never forget. And children that are kidnapped and murdered, people that are kidnapped or lured by a serial killer and tortured and killed, that happens. And we think that that happens a lot, but the truth of the matter is, it does not. Certainly, serial killers get a lot of ink and a lot of airtime, and they are very rare. Your chances of being, oh gosh, your chances of being snared and killed 
by a serial killer are so remote. But what sets the serial killer apart is more often than not, part of their routine with a victim is to lure them to go with them, lure them into a car, lure them out of a bar. Hey, you know, let me walk you out to your car. There's a lot of creepy guys around here. I'll walk you out to your car. Boom. You know, he gets her outside. She's his. That's kind of thing. And the lure serial killers have told us is so exciting for them. They like to think they're smarter. They do think they're smarter than the average person. They feel they are superior. And luring someone is it's a little game they play. If I can get you to go with me, if I can get you to go in my car, then you deserve to die. I've heard that said. If you're stupid enough to go with a stranger, and that's what I am to you, and I get you in my car, you're going to die and you're going to deserve it. That's how they think. It's like Robert Hansen, right? Like Robert yeah. Hansen. That's, he's dealt, yes. If they said yes to doing something with him, they deserved. They weren't a good girl. So here's the lesson. If anybody, no matter how unassuming they may seem, tries to get you to go with them somewhere, to go from place A to place B, don't do it. Never go to a second location. Well, some of those serial killers, though, like Rodney Alcala, who we just mentioned, they're approaching kids Mm -hmm. saying, get in the car, or there's no way to say I'm smarter than this person because it's a kid with limited maturity and world knowledge. There's no other word, but sick. Well, the thing to do, and this is what I did with my son, he's 46 years old now, but when he was a little boy, I would actually do role-playing with him to teach him. And you don't tell a little kid really bad stuff. No, no, no. My parents told me never to get in a car, but they never told me why. So when my son was growing up, and maybe he's six or seven, we talk about never get in a car with a stranger. You have to explain to a kid, what's a stranger? And a stranger to them is someone that you don't know, they don't know, but it's not unusual for a child to be kidnapped by someone who lives near them. When an adult is driving around residential neighborhoods and asking kids, hey, where's Elm Street? First of all, adults don't ask little kids for directions. Tell your child that. Say, if an adult is asking you a direction, You stay with your friends, do not get near the car, and you get out of there. And when you present things to a child like that in a non-threatening manner, you don't want to scare him to death. You don't want him to be sleeping in your bed that night because you scared him so much. And then as my son got older, I would expand the things I was telling him and try to create an environment with him where he was never, would never be afraid to come and tell me something. A lot of times, kids feel if something bad happened to them, it was their fault. So you need to tell your kids, if something happens to you, it's not your fault, and you need to tell me. Don't be afraid to tell me. You're not going to be punished, but it's important that you tell me. Yeah, I think it's also important to tell them that 
no matter what they say, when they say keep the secret, that either something's going to happen to you or something's going to happen to your parents. Oh, yes. You have to tell them. Like Tony from the rescue episode, for those of you who haven't heard it, it's pretty amazing. And he told Tony that he would take him and put him in the bottom of the lake. Right. And I told my kid, I said, listen, if somebody ever says that they're going to harm me or your father or they're going to harm you, if you tell anybody, you still tell me because I guarantee you I will protect you from them harming you and I am not worried about them harming me. I said, you have to tell someone. And he kind of got that. I mean, he is a little young to understand really what it means to be abducted and and what that would entail. But he knows enough to know that he doesn't want to be separated from mom and dad. Right. Use words that kids use. Pretend. Trick. Kids pretend all the time. I remember saying to my son would be three or four and he's doing something. I said, oh, you're pretending to be a fireman today. Kids understand that word. And so one of the things I told my son was, if an adult confronts you or maybe says to you, can you come in my house and I'll give you some hot chocolate or anything like that, they're trying to get you to go somewhere with them. Three things I want you to remember. First one is say no, very firmly, no. Second one, go, get out of there. Third one, tell. No, go, tell. The FBI conducted a study of serial child molesters, and most of them are serial child molesters. And to even be considered for the research, they had to be, have been responsible for, I think, 40 or 50 molestations. But one of the things the child molesters told us was, if a kid said no firmly, they would just turn and walk away. They don't want trouble. Trouble from a kid that they're trying to get can result in disclosure. And they don't want that. They must maintain a secret that they're a pedophile or child molester. So no, firmly, no, go, tell. Here's the thing about secrets and child molesters. Without the secret, the child molester has no power. Think about it. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with SimpliSafe. Its advanced technology protects every room, window, and door of your home while cameras keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7, all for less than a dollar a day. And there's no long-term contract, ever. I love SimpliSafe because it's so straightforward and easy to install. Knowing that my home is protected 24-7 gives me so much peace of mind. It's great that I can always check on my home through the app on my phone. Protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash psyche. That's simplysafe.com slash psyche. There's no safe like Simply Safe. 
If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. What is it when you're doing one of these episodes that you look for when you're doing your research? Well, it's right there in the name of the podcast, Julie. And I think it's what makes us different than any other podcast I'm aware of because I have a background in clinical psychiatry, maximum security. I was a psychiatric nurse at Northwestern. Almost 10 years I was in psychiatry. And so what makes our podcast different? Why I love it and my favorite part of the podcast is Act Two. We have three acts. Act Two is explaining what was going on behaviorally, psychologically with these people that probably contributed to them taking someone's life. And for me, that's what makes our podcast interesting and different. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of comments about you forgot this detail about the crime or you didn't talk about this in the crime. Well, first of all, it's a 35-minute episode, 35, 45 minutes. We can't put everything in there. But the second thing is our focus is not about the crime. It's about the killer. And I, I also know that we fielded a lot of questions about, did it have to be so gory? Did you have to tell these things? Was it kind of like trauma porn? And I would just like to say, you have no idea what we've edited out because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we try really hard right. to kind of walk that middle ground of not giving too many details and being disrespectful to the victim, while at the same time explaining the gravity and the terrible things that this person has done, because later we talk about what made them do those terrible things. So we have to give a little piece of that. Um, mm -hmm. along with trying to protect people's privacy or the victim's family's privacy. Right. And uh, not offend people. And it's interesting that people either feel like we haven't gone far enough or that we've gone too far. Right. I, I totally agree with you. If what we've edited out or what was never in the script, because I would not repeat to anyone, even if you and I were having a glass of wine talking about crimes, I wouldn't tell you the details of some of these crimes because one reason, Julie, when I heard them, I didn't sleep well that night. So why would I do that to someone else? I wouldn't. Well, it's kind of like what we were talking about with the, the crime scene photos, especially yeah. in the Ed Gein case where they had that crime scene photo. Just You could just Google it and it came up. Yeah. Exactly. Some cases are so 
notorious, so infamous, such as Ed Gein. I mean, the movie Psycho was spawned from that crime. And two other movies that pictures just get out. And I've seen some crime scene pictures on the internet that I was horrified. These are pictures that I saw in profiler training that had no business on the internet. I don't know how they got out. Police and FBI profilers and instructors were extremely careful with our material to always respect the victim and and the victim's family. Well, it's just, it's interesting that so many people are into those details. And I details, they're not important. And if somebody said to me, come on, you know, more gory stuff, tell me I would walk away. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, there's no need for it. That brings us to another point. Sometimes when we're looking and we're researching, information on every site is different. Even the actual crime information, what happened is vastly different from another site. And it's become a kind of a it's frustrating to figure out who can we trust, who can we not trust. I generally tend to trust court documents and also bigger newspapers that Mm -hmm. hopefully fact check. There's a lot of true crime blogs and podcasts out there, and some of them are fantastic, but we have to do our own research on what there is out there. And it can be difficult to decide who's got the correct information and who doesn't. Well, we've talked about the uh, 1946 lipstick murders in Chicago. The information from that came directly from the profiler that taught my profiling class about that crime, Robert Ressler, and many from John Douglas as well. And those are two men that are represented in the hit Netflix series, Mindhunter. And Mindhunter is the name of John Douglas's first book. And frankly, a lot of the stuff right from Douglas and Ressler and others, you never see in the New York Times. It's too too much. What I'm trying to say is reliable sources, any crime that is noted by those two guys. And and they went around interview, they interviewed 40 serial killers for the first research. You can take what they say to the bank. But everybody else, yeah, I know it was maddening, maddening reading all the different stories. I think sometimes people make something up and post it on the internet. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, they fill in the blanks. I guess yeah. it's it's the whole speculation. Sometimes we say in the podcast, I'm speculating because that's really what it is because sometimes the killers are dead or they haven't done an interview. So we have to speculate. But the things we can take to the bank also are some of the court documents. We look at appeals because they generally tell the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder why some of those killers decided to tell Robert Ressler and John Douglas about what they've done. I know they wanted some of them wanted the notoriety. And I wonder if some of them lied when they were telling it. Like it was different than the crime scene slides or it was different. Maybe their memory had exaggerated it. Do you right. know anything and about yeah. that? Well, Douglas and Ressler talked about that. Before they would go in to interview someone, they knew that case like the back of their hand. And lying to them, you could try it. 
but they'd be called on it and say, no, we know that didn't happen. Son of Sam, David Berkowitz did this with Robert Ressler. And after the second or third time of telling Ressler, the neighbor's dog told me to do it, Ressler said, I'm out of here. You're wasting my time. And Berkowitz said, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and some of them, I know one in particular, and we'll be doing an episode on this guy down the road, a mass murderer. He denied that he remembered anything about it, said he was on drugs. So, of course, that's not a good interview. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. When you have, I don't want to say the power, but when you have a listening audience, you want to make sure the information you're giving them is correct. And I know mm -hmm. that in some cases you've had to, because you practiced psychiatry a while ago, I'm not going to say a long time ago because I want to live past this podcast, <laughs> but a while ago and things have changed. You worked with the DSM-3. It's now on the DSM-6. Is, is it five? Five. five. It's five. I started out my career as a psychiatric nurse in 1971. And back then, there was so much we did not know. What we know now, we just didn't know back then. We didn't know that some mental illnesses could be created, could be spawned by bad behavior, by abusive childhoods. We didn't know. We thought, you know, bipolar disorder and thought disorders were the person was born with it. Well, we know a lot more now than we did then. And diagnosis is better, treatment's better, medications are better. Therapy is far more accessible than it used to be. I really enjoy the comments from mental health nurses and psychologists. We've even had a psychiatrist. And one person did call me on it. They said, your information's dated. And I went back and checked. And sure enough, they were right. Psychiatry and psychology has come so, so far. Just in the last 20 years, the first time I sat down across the table from someone who committed murder was almost 50 years ago as a psychiatric nurse. But something I really like about you is that you're not someone who is so stubborn that you don't accept outside thoughts and critiques. You actually went and educated yourself on it, and you were like, mm -hmm. yeah, I was wrong. Here it is. Right. And I, I do like that about you because it helps me also when I come to you and ask you things and we debate it back and forth, it helps me to learn as well. And I hope that's what people get from the podcast is they're learning not only what to look out for, but why these things you have to look out for. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. But and sometimes I'll be called on something and I'll, I'll check it out on the DSM and go, nope, I was right there wrong. <laughs> so 
But I have to check and see. I certainly don't want to be passing on wrong information. No, that is very important for us in this podcast is we double, triple check things. We go back, we check multiple sources. And I think in the Lizzie Borden episode, we had to keep saying, according to this source, according to one source, according to another source, because Mm -hmm. there were so many different sources that said different things. And let's be honest, it was a while ago. And I think a lot of those sources were also speculating as to the why and the how. The actual newspapers were like reading gossip rags. There wasn't a lot of fact-checking going on back then. Well, I have an interesting story about that. Newspapers then and now, they're under pressure. They have deadlines. The reporters, the writers, they have deadlines. They've got to make a deadline, especially in those days, for the morning edition of the paper, for the afternoon or evening edition of the paper. So that puts the writer, the reporter, under pressure to say something. And in a million years, I never would have thought that somebody would just make something up, a news person. However, I don't know if I told you this story. We did cover the Tylenol murders in 1982 in Chicago. And I was a rookie agent worked that case. And I was at the command center one evening quite late And we knew the press was outside. And FBI policy is FBI agents are to say when they're approached for information, no comment. There is an FBI agent in every field division that is specially trained to deal with the media. And that person is called the media representative. They are an FBI agent and they are trained and they handle everything. I was coming out, it was about 10 o'clock at night, walking to my car, and there were a few reporters hanging around, and one of them came up to me, a young man, and he said, hey, I know you're an FBI agent. I can see you through the window answering phones at the hotline. What can you tell me? And I said, no comment. And he started walking with me to my car. And he said, no, seriously, you know, I see you in and out of your car. What's going on? What can you tell me? And I said, seriously. I can't tell you anything. No comment. Julie, this is what he said to me. Ah, come on, tell me something, or I'm going to have to make something up. Oh, my God. I looked at him. I think my eyeballs popped out of my head. And I I think I said, yeah, that's what I kind of suspected about you guys. But he actually said that. He goes, if you don't tell me, I'm going to have to make stuff up. So, circling back to getting many, many different stories and wondering which are factual in some of these crimes might be exactly because of that. People are under pressure to write, to provide information. And a lot of times they interview neighbors. For example, I'm sure you've seen news stories where neighbors were interviewed. And what a lot of the gossip is gossip. And some neighbors are actually speculating And it's taken as gospel and put in print. I think people choose to believe the most salacious details instead of the truth that might be right in front of them. Right. Have you ever heard the expression, so-and-so has never let the truth get in the way of a good story? Oh, yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. Kind of like that. The stories can be much more interesting, and I think some people just like to create spin. 
There's so much more to our conversation that Julie and I wanted to share. So it will be in an episode that will air in a few weeks. Next week on Killer Psyche, Tony Caritas. From Wondery and Treefort Media, this is Killer Psyche. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. This episode was written and produced by Lisa Ammerman and Julie Burke. Edited by Joshua Morales and Maxwell Carney. With research and editing assistance from Anne Liu. Our senior audio producer is Tom Monahan. Renee Levesque is production manager. And Haley Mandelberg is production coordinator. Brandon Clark and Lindsay Whistler are production assistants. And the line producer is Oscar Guido. Our executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort and Marsha Louie and Aaron O'Flaherty for Wondery. The series is produced by Wondery and Treefort Media. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice. Only on Freebie. Freebie.